Support comes from the History's Trainwrecks podcast that focuses on stories like a temper tantrum that changed history, the president who promised not to run again and regretted it for the rest of his life, the World War II general who lost his pants on a secret mission in enemy territory. The History's Trainwrecks podcast, available now. Hi everyone and welcome to the History of Asia podcast. We're back and today we start off on a brand new series of time travels. And if you saw the title of the episode, well, then you already know the destination. That's right, Iran. I was really excited to get onto this topic, and now that I got here, I'm gonna take my sweet time with it too. Iranian history is so wild, so strange, it's better than fiction. And precisely because it's such a mystery, I think it lends itself perfectly to my style of storytelling. For trying to demystify things that seem to make no sense, that's what we do around here. I think that, as always, there is a certain logic to the madness. But to get to that, you need to work yourself through layer upon layer of history, every single period worthy of a TV series in and of itself. Now, what do I mean when I say Iran is a mystery? Let's elaborate a bit on that, shall we? For starters, Look at its current place in world politics. It's commonly known that Iran is the archenemy of Saudi Arabia. But despite their mutual loathing, they do have a lot in common, don't they? Perhaps the most obvious resemblance is that in both countries, Islamic scholars have a lot of influence. The Wahhabis of Saudi Arabia, well, it wouldn't be right to say that they run the place, but they certainly define what the law is, to a large degree in any case. In Iran, you have the Ayatollahs, which, in case you don't know, are prominent Shia clerics. Now, normally I wouldn't use the word cleric for Islamic scholars, since they don't usually see themselves as intermediaries between God and man. They don't perform holy sacraments or anything. But as will become clear, in Shiism, it's a little different. And therefore, I could make an exception for the Ayatollahs. Their word carries much more weight than that of a Sunni scholar. Some are even considered infallible, at least by their devotees. The Ayatollahs also have a strong grip on the state, not just on the judicial branch like the ulama in Saudi Arabia, but on all branches of government. Even Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei, is one of them, as are nearly all the presidents that Iran has had since it goes by the name Islamic Republic. This is why some call Iran a theocracy, and although that's plain wrong, it is also undeniable that the behavior of citizens is restricted by religious codes. And if you break these moral codes, well, they don't always send you off with a warning. Punishments can be draconian, up to and including execution. If someone catches you under a sheet with another man, for instance, if you're a man, (laughs) then you're as good as dead. But I wouldn't recommend that if you were in Saudi Arabia either. So the similarities in this regard are probably bigger than the distinction is all I'm saying. There are other parallels between these two countries. For instance, in both there is a thin line between the private sector and the state. As we discussed in the previous series, the princes of Arabia have a huge amount of influence in politics and business. It's not without reason that Saudi Arabia is named after the family that runs it. In Iran, they don't have royalty anymore, but they do have a revolutionary guard. Now, this is a ginormous paramilitary movement, but they do much more than fighting. 
On the side, they run a true business empire. Well-connected mullahs exert their economic influence mostly through entities that are known as boniats. These are usually referred to as trusts or charities, but that's not really doing them justice, I think. The boniats are involved in all sorts of activities, ranging from oil over food to propaganda and everything in between. Their dealings are extremely murky, it's near impossible to tell what's really going on in there. They're just as intransparent as Aramco, one might say. They don't even need to open their books to the tax authorities, which can offer a competitive edge, I imagine. Since they are so dominant in so many sectors, this saps the creative juice out of the economy. Again, as in Saudi Arabia, the clerics also have a profound influence on foreign policy. And partly because of that, both countries have had a similar impact on regional stability, or rather, instability. As radical Sunnism spread from Saudi-funded madrasas, so the Iranians propagated militant Shiism all over the Middle East. In so doing, they have divided it into opposing camps. In Yemen, for instance, Sunnis and Shiites used to pray side by side in the same mosques before this Islamic Cold War started. Whether this is mostly Iran's fault, or whether the Saudis are to blame, that all depends on whom you ask, but you'll rarely find an outside observer claiming that either of them blames a constructive role in this. So here too, kind of comparable these two. But in the case of Saudi Arabia, all this has long been tolerated, more or less. And the explanation that we keep hearing for that is, well, we may not like what they're doing, but at least they're allies. You wouldn't want all these fossil fuels falling into the hands of an enemy now, would you? Here's the thing though, when it comes to oil, and especially gas, Iran's reserves are almost just as impressive. According to the EIA, in 2019, only two countries produced more natural gas than Iran, the US and Russia. Nonetheless, it only exported as much as Trinidad and Tobago, and less than a tenth of Qatar. This is due to the fact that it uses a lot itself. Iran's economy and population are much bigger than Qatar's, and it subsidizes the use of gas. But of course, just as important are the sanctions. And this brings me to the crux of this comparison. Saudi Arabia and Iran clearly have much in common, but while the former has long been cherished as an important ally, the latter is simply an outcast. It's weighed down by sanctions and desperately looking for life insurance in the form of a nuclear bomb. Heck, there's even been talk of a US invasion not that long ago. Which would make Afghanistan look like a picnic if you ask me. With the stakes so high, you'd expect everyone to be able to answer the following question. Given all these things that Saudi Arabia and Iran have in common, why are these two countries treated so differently? What makes this even more puzzling is that at least compared to the Arabian kingdoms, Iran is in fact quite democratic. Unlike the assemblies in the Gulf, Iran's parliament actually does have significant decision-making powers. There's also an elected president. Voter turnout has at times been nothing short of impressive, although the enthusiasm has cooled off late. This hints to a well-embedded democratic tradition. Now in all fairness, all this needs to be taken with more than a pinch of salt. Yes, parliament can enact laws, but these can be vetoed by the high clergy, which they often do. Any elected body can be overruled by the Islamic experts in the so-called Guardian Council. 
these justices can also exclude any candidate from participating in elections. So while representatives and presidents are elected by the people, only a few insiders make it onto the ballot. And the elections themselves don't usually go flawless either. The election committee is in the hands of the clerical establishment too, and even if the accusations of fraud were baseless, it's hard to deny that the media are tightly controlled, which would play a huge part in any election. The most important man in Iran is the supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. He has once been elected by a council, which theoretically controls him still, but in practice it's more like the other way around. He has been sitting in his chair for three decades. After such a time, don't you think it becomes more like a throne? Most Iranians never knew any other supreme leaders. His prerogatives are royal in nature too. He can personally fill in most crucial positions of power. This includes half the members of the all-important Guardian Council. The other half are chosen by Parliament, but only out of a selection that is presented to them by the head of the judiciary, who is himself chosen by, you guessed it, the supreme leader. The latter also appoints the leaders of the army, the secret police and the religious institutions. So Iran may have a perplexing labyrinth of checks and balances on paper. Khamenei's power makes all that ring rather hollow. Khamenei is almost certain to stay in his job for life and might even be followed by his son. This is why some would say that Iran is in practice more like a kingdom than a republic. That is too harsh, however. Iran is far from a simple dictatorship, not least because, unlike the Saudi people, the Iranians have a long tradition of holding their leaders to account. They're pretty proud of that. And this matters. You can claim all you want that your authority is absolute, but if no one believes in absolute power, it won't do you any good. Some Iranians believe that the supreme leader is infallible. Many do not. And it's impossible to know how many. In this regard, no number of spies can offer the same information as a well-set-up poll in a free society. Therefore, Khamenei must tread carefully, and he knows it. He can set out the lines within which civilian politicians can operate, but he must never act as if the people's voice counts for nothing. He must not appear a dictator, for his people clearly don't want to live under one. This knowledge empowers civilian politicians. Like ordinary civilians, the chosen leaders regularly test the boundaries of what is permissible and then stretch them to the limit. Despite all the censorship, the candidate selection and the intimidation, the results of an election are rarely clear in advance. Whether the last elections were the exception that proved the rule or whether they constitute a new rule, who's to say? But when former President Hassan Rouhani was elected, he was the most reformist candidate on the ballot and the clerical establishment openly supported other candidates. Even so, he was re-elected in 2017. The most interesting thing about that, perhaps, is that all the candidates who were considered more moderate than he had already been weeded out in the pre-selection. So his spectacular victory suggests that the preferences of the majority were far more liberal still. We can only guess what kind of president Iran would have had without this vetting process. But then, how to explain that the current president, Ibrahim Raisi, can only be typified as a hardliner pur sang? 
He was even on the US sanctions list and singled out by human rights activists for his role as prosecutor during the early years of the revolution. That the same people can vote for such different personalities in such a short span of time that can seem incomprehensible at first sight. To a large part this is indeed due to the vetting process, but recent history could offer an explanation for a drastic mood swing too, as we'll see. Finally, we might also ask ourselves, is this really so much more strange than the American people voting for Bush, Obama and Trump in quick succession? Like America, Iran is a land with two very different faces. And speaking of the US, the most quintessential Iranian scene of all, that has to be the burning of the stars and stripes, no? And yet, believe it or not, most experts and visitors get the impression that Iranians in general are more positive towards the West than the rest of the Middle East. The same thing applies to the Jews, by the way. I'm, not, I'm sure that many of you will remember how former Iranian President Ahmadinejad provocatively denied the Holocaust and threatened to wipe Israel off the map. Then you might be forgiven for thinking that Iran is a no-go zone for Jews. Well, it really isn't. Unlike in most Arab countries, there is a thriving Jewish community. Judaism is perfectly legal and protected even, as are all monotheistic religions. Except for one, which may be the most numerous minority, but more about that later. So here we have yet another Iranian paradox, don't we? Iranians revile the US and Israel. They call them Great Satan and Little Satan, respectively. But it turns out that most have nothing against Americans or Jews. And why the provocative attitude? Why, for instance, does Iran sponsor all sorts of violent movements like Hamas and Hezbollah? Without wanting to excuse these things, I'll try to argue that such seemingly irrational actions often look more logical in their historical and local context. If someone wants to do something about it, he must first try to step in the other guy's shoes for a second, find out what he wants and how he feels. By the way, current events in Ukraine have shown the importance of this, I think. From where I stand, it's the lack of such understanding and empathy that got us into this mess, and it may be the only way out as well. Like Putin, Iran may have a rational reason for its aggressive behavior. It sends a message to the outside world, and especially to the US. And the message is, if you want to get anything done in this region, you will have to talk to me. There is irony in this. The fact that Tehran is such a troublemaker gives outside powers a reason to pursue regime change. This in turn spurs Iran to seek a bomb in self-defense, which makes countries like the US and Israel even more determined to prevent that from happening. No one likes the prospect of a nuclear-armed state with Iran's track record of aggression, of course. And once that line is crossed, it's too late. Now perhaps you might think that the idea of imposed regime change will sound appealing to those liberty-minded people in Iran. How else are they going to get their freedom, right? But guess again. They may not be fond of their current leaders, but they have really bad memories of foreign meddling. And they don't like to be told what they, as a people, can or cannot do. So both sides are stuck in a vicious cycle of distrust and unintended consequences. But let's not be naive. Not all of this is unintended. Some of Iran's enemies have cynical motifs for keeping the situation tense. Iran has enormous potential. If all sanctions were to be lifted, it could, for instance, 
release massive amounts of oil and gas onto world markets. And this would have dire consequences for other energy exporting countries like, oh, I don't know, America and Saudi Arabia to name just a few. More generally, freed from sanctions, Iran could well emerge as the regional hegemon. It, ha it has a large educated population, a strategic location and a relatively diverse economy. Well, relative to its rivals, that is. So this rivalry is not just about ideals or religion. We shouldn't be too naive about the intentions of Iran's own key decision makers either. For while the country's isolation deprives its people of opportunities, the status quo plays well into the cards of certain insiders. Take for instance these politically connected foundations, these boniats that monopolize huge chunks of the national economy. Because they have so many advantages, they distort competition in almost any sector. They may be just as important for the underperformance of Iran's economy as the international sanctions. But how could you tell? Well, imagine if these sanctions disappeared, and I mean all of them. Then you would know, right? I can't imagine that this prospect would scare the crap out of certain important people. Hence, they have no interest in calming things down. If the economy opened up to foreign products, that would endanger their cozy monopolies. Which is not to say that it would be all good for the common people, as consumers they would profit from an influx of cheap goods, but as workers in Iranian factories, maybe not that much. This, along with the many sanctions that have always remained, can explain why the relative thaw during the nuclear deal failed to live up to its expectations. By unilaterally blowing up the deal his predecessor signed, Donald Trump has done the Iranian hardliners a great favor. They can now go back to blaming the treacherous USA for the malaise, and of course also the moderate politicians who were in charge until recently. These are now branded as useful idiots who are so naive as to think that the great Satan would stick to his word. There is another deeper element to this fight between Iran and the outside world, however. What I'm about to say now will sound like an awful stereotype. But I want to stress that nearly all Iranian commentators that I read stress this too. Iran has a collective victim complex. You can tell simply by looking at its streets and festivals. Everywhere you are reminded of martyrs. You see giant paintings of martyrs on walls, museums dedicated to them, streets named after them. You might retort that this tells you more about the financial means of the boniads that pay for this stuff than about people's state of mind. That is true, but then what about Iranian authors? They love to rail against the simplified views of their countrymen, and yet even they recognize Iran's obsession with victimhood. Human Mate even writes that it is underestimated. If such lucid observers say as much, who am I to disagree? They even got a word for it, apparently. Something like uh, Ogde. I mispronounced that, surely. But I suggest you get used to that, for my Iranian is not poor but non-existent. But then again, I have no ambition to learn every language in Asia. I'm willing to apologize for many things, but that's not one of them, sorry. <laughs> now, if Iranians are indeed more prone to conspiracy theories than the rest of us, perhaps I should say even more, then in all fairness to them, they also have more experience with actual conspiracies than most. Yet that doesn't mean that their distrust can't be played up deliberately. In Iran, pr 
problems are invariably labeled as the work of schemers, which may come in handy for those who might otherwise take the blame. The international sanctions are a case in point. No one can deny that these have real effects, but they also offer a useful scapegoat. And when a regime that is itself paranoid controls the media and education for decades on end, that will leave a mark on public opinion too, I suppose. Now what also plays into this, no doubt, is Iran's isolation. If you never leave the house and you never meet your neighbors, you tend to become more suspicious of other people, wouldn't you agree, Vladimir? <laughs> it's probably not a coincidence that Ru Russia's president acts the way he does after he closed himself off hermetically for years. It seemed that he was just so afraid of contracting the coronavirus. Now, in the case of Iran, this seclusion is more than a snapshot. Mistrust, martyrdom, messianism, these all have ancient roots there. Politics is only one part of it. At least as important is the national religion, Twelver Shiism. This is a particular strain of Islam with a complex of victimhood all of its own. When we get deeper into it, you will quickly see why. Given its history, it makes the country and its religion like a perfect match. And that is not a total coincidence either, I should say. The country's history is closely intertwined with that of its idiosyncratic form of Islam, and this goes back way longer than the current clerical regime. Iran's religious establishment has played an unusually large part for centuries, and Twelver Shiism has also been used as a unifying tool by worldly politicians. Therefore, it has permeated Iranian society true and true. The martyr cults of Iran's national heroes intermix with those of Shia saints. The latter is symbolized most of all by that other picturesque Iranian event, Ashura. If you've never seen images of that, do look it up on YouTube, it's rather spectacular. On Ashura, worshippers walk through the streets like flagellants. They beat themselves on the chest and they weep ostentatiously. These processions commemorate the martyrdom of Imam Hussein, in the eyes of Shiites, the quintessential victim of Sunni betrayal. Now, don't be fooled by the spectacle. All that is not to say that Iranians are overly pious. It seems that most are not all that strict about Islamic doctrine. Only a tiny minority participates in Friday prayer, for instance. According to Evie Blankevoort, a Dutch writer who lived in Iran for quite some time, Many are paid to show up at the typical public displays that we see on television. She testifies that the same goes even for many people who work in propaganda or who join the vice squads. It's hard to make a living in Iran, you see. So while it's all important to behave piously um, in public, behind closed doors regulations are casually ignored, despite all the harsh penalties and the ubiquitous informers. Iranians are committed to their freedom. As far as we can tell, most still see themselves as Muslim, however, and are not opposed to the principle of an Iraq Islamic Republic per se. Yet even pious Shiites don't necessarily need to follow the lead of the supreme leader. According to their religious doctrines, they're not supposed to. Let me explain. I sometimes compare Shiites to Catholics and Sunnis to Protestants. And that is because in Sunnism, the accent is on finding answers in the Quran itself, sola scriptura, as Luther would say. But in Twelver Shiism, the common believer is supposed to rely on the guidance of those who have access to special insight in Islamic law, 
Now, if you're a specialist of some aspect of this law yourself, you can follow your own judgment. But in other areas, you still need to look to someone who knows better. Now, at the very top of this clerical hierarchy, which you won't find in Sunnism, you have about a dozen grand ayatollahs. These are also known as objects of emulation. The thing is, though, that they don't always agree on everything. In fact, there are some who are not fond of the whole idea of an Islamic Republic, at least not like it was instated in Iran, and this includes the most popular Grand Ayatollah of all. He's called Al-Sistani, and although he's Iranian, he now lives in Iraq, which I suppose makes his views and his fame all the more troublesome when you look at it from the desk of the supreme leader. Now, if I told you that deferring to scholarly authority is more or less a dogma, that already tips you off to the kind of respect that Iranians have for intellectuals. Iranians are, on average, a well-read people, and they are rightly proud of that. Nearly every adult in Iran can read and write, while across the wider Middle East the estimated number is more like 70%. Blankvoort at some point noticed that books often have a prominent place in Iranian living rooms. That doesn't mean that they really read them, but it's still kind of a statement, isn't it? Many Iranians go to university, but being a student, that also means learning to think for yourself. Revolutions often start on campus. By the way, unlike in other Middle Eastern countries, women go to college just as often as men, more even. Those who do are less inclined to accept the norms of the patriarchy. These are still enforced all the same. Women are still forced to cover their bodies when walking down the street, for instance. In theory, this should make their public presence acceptable, so some see it as a means of emancipation, and up to a point it is. But in practice, it's also a form of discrimination, one among many, and in this, the authorities find an ally in the many husbands who don't want their wives out of the house either. Still, men's mentalities are changed by university too. Of course, the authorities understand that as well. On campus, like anywhere else, freedom of speech is restricted and propaganda is all-pervasive. But perhaps one might speculate, since this propaganda revolves around conspiracies, you know, schemers are everywhere, don't believe their lies, well, don't you think that could make people more skeptical towards the official narrative too? This is one more paradox, and I think one that is inevitable if rulers embrace a cult of victimhood. It's hard to present yourself as the champion of the underdog if you are the one in power. The spirit of Iran is full of such contradictions. It has an inferiority complex, but at the same time, it also has a superiority complex. Now, it may be a bit silly to diagnose a country with pathologies that are individual in nature, but at the same time, there is something you might call a national spirit, something that emerges through millennia of shared, remembered experiences, both glorious and traumatic. This will become clear as we put Iran on the therapist's couch and ask it about its childhood. There were times when Iranians presented themselves as the kings of the world, quite literally, but there have also been periods in which they felt that the whole world was against them, that they were victims of grave injustice. And this is one of those periods, needless to say. Now, many Iranians, fond as they are of books and stories, do remember all these periods. 
both the current and former regimes have used the past as a way of legitimation, and this has no doubt fueled chauvinism more perhaps than genuine interest in history. Reimagined though they are, both the glorious and the infamous extremes of its past leave a clear mark of, on Iran's collective psychology. The result is a paradoxical blend. The country wants to retake its place on top of the world, but at the same time it wants to turn away from it in disgust, to ex escape into better worlds of ideas and ideals, be it paradise or beautiful poetry. I do believe that a closer look at Iran's history may reveal the reasons for this schizophrenia, if you will. In the upcoming months, we'll try to investigate these Janus heads of the Iranian soul. Now you might say, why does this matter? Well, it has real-world ramifications. It explains Iran's reaction to certain world events. Iran has been a great civilization since pretty much the dawn of time, unlike Arabia or America and its inhabitants are all too aware of that. Now the fact that the rest of the world doesn't seem to care, or at least doesn't recognize this, that's taken as an insult. So though few Iranians may love their current leaders, even fewer would want foreigners telling them to get rid of them, or that they are not allowed to have nuclear weapons. They feel that, as a great power, they are simply entitled to such things, since other superpowers have them as well. These paradoxes in its mindset seem to reflect Iran's physical landscape, which is also full of contrast. Now this too will seem far-fetched at first, but there is more to this than mere symbolism. The fertile regions and the big cities tend to identify with the sophistication of the Persian empires of yore. But in the poor countryside, most folks are traditional and tribal. They look toward their own community above all. These divergences are reflected in culture, perhaps even in religion. Iran's desolate landscapes lend themselves to mystical experiences, but these sit awkwardly with the legalistic attitude of the Ayatollahs, who see themselves in a way as technocrats. How so? Well, since the law is based in religion, and they are the religious experts par excellence, they are supposed to earn their place due to their expertise. The other side of Iran, however, doesn't care about textual analysis or logical deduction. Instead, it is drawn to ancient customs, enchanting stories, romantic poems, in short, to all sorts of things that strict scholars might dismiss as un-Islamic make-believe. Yet this is so important that even the state has had to acknowledge some of these things. Both the national epic of Shahnameh and the preeminent holiday of Nauruz both refer to a pre-Islamic past and even to older religions. Now Westerners' fascination with that other side of Iran is typically scorned these days. Orientalism, it's basically a slur, but judging from what Iranians write about their culture themselves, that criticism seems only partially warranted. That said, while we examine statements about Iran's psyche, we must always keep in mind that countries, even more than individuals, are so complex that they defy stereotypes. It goes without saying that there are plenty of Iranians who don't fit any of these descriptions. But I'm di digressing a bit, I'm afraid. Let's talk a bit more about Iran's physical characteristics. Both in terms of size and population density, it's comparable to, well, Arabia again. Both are largely inhospitable. In Iran, this is mainly due to the mountain ranges. 
Few countries in the world are so mountainous. They hold back rain clouds, these mountains, thereby turning the plains beyond into dead wastelands. Rivers are unnavigable, except for the Karun, which touches the sea near Mesopotamia. And each year, the mountain streams are dry for months on end. Therefore, agriculture is only possible at the foot of the hills, and only because farmers have been resourceful in finding ways of draining meltwater. Even so, water scarcity remains one of the gravest threats, together with pollution, and that is also not unrelated to the mountains. The foot of the mountain is also where the cities are located. The capital Tehran overlooks the Elbors Highland, for instance, and like rain clouds, smog can be trapped by the mountains and kept in place. The different population centers are separated by highland and desert. It was not until the 20th century that these clusters were connected by roads, and even today transport remains problematic. Mountain ranges not only divide Iran internally, they also form natural borders. In the west they block the way to Turkey, in the north and east to Central Asia and Pakistan. On the south side it is separated from the Arabian east coast by a narrow sea strait. This is where the UAE and Kuwait ship their oil to the open sea. The narrowest point, the Strait of Hormuz, therefore has a strategic value comparable to Gibraltar. But that vulnerability also applies to Iran itself, which may partly explain why it has no seafaring tradition. Its focus has been on land. Because it is encapsulated by mountains, the country is sometimes compared to a fortress, which may also apply to its politics and religion. Yet its isolation is incomplete. There are fragile mountain passes, which you might say act as small windows. There is also an open front door, however, in the west at the Iraqi border. That region has always been strategic to the rulers of both Iraq and Iran. Formerly, that was because of the fertile soil there. The Shat al-Arab, or the Arvand Rut in Iranian, is the place where the Tigris and Euphrates river meet, near the sea. You can imagine that this is kind of important. Currently, it lies on the border between the two countries. But these days, even more important is that Iran's most important energy reserves are concentrated near this porous border, and the same goes for Iraq. What makes this oily region extra combustible is that both sides of the border are inhabited by ethnic Arabs who belong to the Shiite sect. This reminds me of what we said about the Saudis. Their oil is concentrated in a province where most inhabitants are Shiite. And that's a problem most of all because the preeminent Shiite state is their strategic rival Iran. The latter may use its bonds with the inhabitants of Eastern Arabia to its benefit. Likewise, the Iraqi government fears Iran's influence over its own Shiites, which comprise a majority of the population. The leading Shia sites of pilgrimage are located in Iraq. These are the cities of Najaf and Karbala. The former contains the grave of Imam Ali, after whom the Shiites are named, and the latter is where his son Hussein fell. Now, as I said already, Iraqi clerics can influence politics in Iran and vice versa. Many Iranians go on pilgrimage to Iraq, while reversely, many Iraqi scholars go to Iran to study at the prestigious seminaries of Qom. There are about a dozen grand ayatollahs there, who each have many thousands of followers, also in Iraq. But Iran has a similar problem itself. Not only 
or their clerics in Iraq, which are critical of the Iranian regime, Iran's own border region is inhabited by Arabs. Iraq has sometimes used that fact to lay claim to it. So you see, these overlapping ethnic and religious identities offer both Iran and Iraq reasons for paranoia as well as a legitimation for expansion in the strategic border area. That has often proved a recipe for conflict. Now, Arabs are not the only minority in Iran's peripheral provinces. There are also regions that are dominated by Balochis, Azerbaijanis or Kurds, which also have a distinct uh, separate identity. In fact, ethnic Persians make up barely half the population. This diversity is a reflection of the landscape as well. Inside the Iranian castle, certain rooms have thick walls and within these quarters minorities are in a good position to guard their autonomy. This is the primary weak spot in Iran's armor. Its enemies have always encouraged separatism in these regions. It makes the Iranian leaders more suspicious towards such regional minorities. I'd like to end this episode on a positive note. It's fashionable to talk about Iran as a collection of problems, but as I said, it's still one of my favorite countries and not just because of all the fascinating ironies. True, its current state is nothing to cheer about, but there is more than one silver lining. Like I said, one of the reasons that some of its neighbors are so scared of Iran is because it has such great potential. Despite its isolation, it still enjoys huge influence in the wider region. Not long ago, The Economist even declared that Iran had won the Cold War against Saudi Arabia, since its influence is now stronger. A bit prematurely perhaps, but still. If a country can pull that off, while its rivals are so much richer, and while the whole world seems poised to prevent it, that's quite an accomplishment, whether you want to salute it or not. The economy has great potential too. Not because of its fossil fuels, these are not exactly future-proof, but on the contrary, because it is kept from falling into a resource trap. In a country like the UAE, foreigners do a lot of the work. But since Iran is so isolated, over there, that would be unthinkable. So by necessity, it's Iranian men and women who actually do keep their country's economy afloat. Ironically, Iran's diplomatic quarantine makes this a necessity. It was forced to set up its own industries, including in cars, chemicals, IT and, of course, weapons. All this you cannot do without an educated population, which by definition likes to think for itself. It partly explains why Iran's rulers have never stopped paying lip service to democracy. And since Iranians don't seem to blame Western people for its misery, only their governments, that may leave hope for conciliation one day. I certainly hope so. But that is only possible as long as a military confrontation is averted. Therefore, Iranians and Westerners need to start understanding one another better. In the upcoming episodes, I'll try to make a start with that myself. Now, I can imagine you're all eager to send me a lot of money to help me with this uh, world-saving task. <coughs> But uh, good ratings and reviews are really all the support I need. Above all, I hope you like the show. Thanks a bunch for listening. I hope to see you next time. Bye.